Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Elaine Castillo, author of America is Not the Heart, about how to identify your narrative voice, creating and deploying an authentic depiction of trauma, and writing as a queer woman of colour. So you're a girl, and you're poor, but at least you're light-skinned. That'll save you. You're the second eldest child and the second eldest daughter of a family of six children, and your parents are subsistence farmers. Your mom sells vegetables at the local market, and when that doesn't make enough food to put on the table, you sell fruit and beans by the side of the road. That is, until your father manages to get a job working as a clerk for the American military in Guam, where he acquires a mistress and regularly sends money back to the family, the latter gesture absolving the first. He returns every three years for a visit, which is why you and nearly all of your siblings are three, six, or nine years apart in age. On those rare visits, you treat him with rudeness out of loyalty to your mother, who neither thanks nor acknowledges your efforts or, for that matter, your existence, eczema-ridden you at eight, hungry adolescent you at twelve, all your early, ragged versions. When you're old enough to know better but not old enough to actually stop talking back at him, your father will remind you, usually by throwing a chair at your head, that the only reason you're able to attend nursing school is because of his army dollars. It's your first introduction to debt, the utang na loob, the long, drawn-out torch song of filial loyalty. But when it comes to genres, you prefer a heist. Take the money and run. Growing up, everyone says you're stupid, you're clumsy, you get into at least one fight a week, and even your light skin, while universally covetable, is suspicious. Your father often accuses your mother of having taken up with a Chinese merchant or Japanese soldier or Tissoy businessman while he was away. Did that happen? You don't know. Is that unknown man your father? You don't know. If it happened, was it your mother's choice? Was it an affair or was it a case of a word you can't say, can't think, a word that drifts like smog through your life and the lives of all the women around you? You don't know. Looking at your own face doesn't tell you. There isn't anyone you can ask. When you're hungry, sometimes you go out into the fields and stick your stumpy arm down the pockmarks in the earth where tiny dacomo crabs like to scurry away and hide, your fingers grasping for the serrated edge of the shell. Some days you collect enough to carry home for your mother to steam, using the lower half of your shirt as a basket, but sometimes you can't wait, yanking one out by the leg and dashing it on the ground to stun it, then eating the whole thing right there, live and raw, spitting out bits of calcium. Sometimes, instead of a crab, you pull out a wiggling frog, but most of the time you throw those away. Watch them hop to safety. People warn you that those holes are also the favorite hiding places of some semi-poisonous snakes, but when you weigh the danger against the hunger, the hunger always wins. On the days when there are no crabs, no frogs, not even a weak snake, you go around picking dika grass, the kind that the farmers usually feed their horses. You sell makeshift bundles of them by the side of the road, alongside the mangoes and chico, On good days, the dika grass sells so well you produce a little side economy that gives you enough money to buy some chalk nut and maybe the latest issue of Hiwaga so you can catch up on your comics, even though at the end of every one you have to read the most hateful words you'll ever encounter in any language. Abangan ang susunod na kabanata. Look out for the next chapter. Hello, Elaine Castillo, and welcome to the Refraff Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um... Can we start by having you tell us a little bit about your book, America is Not the Heart? 
Uh, yeah, I think I was. Uh, someone asked me to do a kind of like one line elevator pitch of it, which sounds like any writer's worst nightmare. But I th- especially because the first draft of this book was something like 1,000 pages, so I'm not the best at being concise. But I think uh, I think they said something like a uh, former communist rebel turned undocumented immigrant to California moves to the San Francisco Bay Area, falls in love, and grows the hell up. And that's pretty much the book in a nutshell. It kind of follows a former um, NPA rebel, so New People's Army rebel, which is the armed wing of the Communist Party of the Philippines, who then is in a prison camp for two years and after her release is lives in exile with her uncle in California after being disowned by her parents. So it really sort of follows her trajectory, sort of taking care of a new cousin, a younger cousin that she meets, and meeting a young woman that she may or may not fall in love with, and really sort of sort of takes place mainly in the kind of 90s San Francisco Bay Area suburbs that I grew up in. Cool. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's so fantastic. It's funny. Aww, it's like you. emotional. Like I absolutely I love it. It's amazing. Oh, um, so I think it's obviously safe to say it's quite, it's quite the epic as well. Um, it's, you know, it spans countries, generations, like covers conflicts, love stories you mentioned. Um, so how did you go about planning the novel? Like, it's quite it's such a massive thing to tackle for a debut and I'm like so impressed. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Uh, I, I, I think from the beginning, the, the first the first sort of words I wrote about the in the book were the prologue. So the prologue that takes place not uh, takes part not in not in Hero's perspective, but Hero's aunt's perspective, mm-hmm. who uh, who comes from an com- entirely different class background from Hero. Hero grows up fairly sort of upper class, and the prologue t- is in the perspective of Pass, her aunt, who grows up in kind of rural, abject poverty. Um, and for for the longest time, you know th- that that prologue came out of me very sort of quickly and intuitively and for the longest time I thought I was going to write either from Pasa's perspective or from Pasa's daughter's perspective Ronnie who is the cousin that Hero meets and takes care of just because autobiographically I share the most kind of details with Ronnie we grew up in the same I grew up in Milpitas you know our parents my mom was also a nurse my dad was a security guard so I just had the kind of sense of Oh, I, 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 I'll be able to write in a way a kind of, you know, autobiographical novel about the 90s Bay Area, which is what I thought the scope of the novel was. Unfortunately, literally all the pages I wrote from Ronnie's perspective were completely dead on the page. <laughs> They're just like, I, you know, don't let anyone tell you that autobiographical fiction is in any way easier because I had no idea what she sounded like, had no idea what her voice sounded like. And really, it was it wasn't until hero the the idea of a character that was from the NPA was a character that had been floating around in my head for a while. There was a member of my family who uh, was supposedly uh, was actually in the NPA, but I think she was actually quite a higher up. And I didn't know her or ever meet her. It was just sort of very vague stories that I would hear about sort of family members hiding her. But I knew I didn't want to write about anyone important. I was really so I wanted to write about a loser. So I thought I thought I was going to write um, a story just one day about her. And then it was kind of, I, I kind of, when Hero, when I had Hero sort of in my head, I sort of realized, ah, oh, Hero is Ronnie's cousin. They know each other. And the minute sort of Hero kind of walked into the house in Milpitas, in a way the world of the book opened up, so there was air in the room, there was sort of space to breathe, and then I had the perspective from which to write about this kind of sort of Bay Area community. Of course, it meant writing from Hero's perspective, it meant writing about the NPA, and also it meant writing in a mode that I found really uncomfortable, which is to say to write from the perspective of someone who had the kind of class privilege that Hero had, which I was really really resistant to writing about. I just did not want to write a book from someone who had her kind of sort of privilege and wealth. But I think it was because I was so, in a way, recalcitrant and really 
pretty opposed to her that in a way I was able to be free with her and kind of, you know, you yanked the rug out from her in a way that I wasn't doing with Ronnie just because mm. I was so much more defensive of characters like her or Pasa or Rosalind. Mm. That's so interesting. Well, and because the characters in your book have just been lauded because they are mm. just so colourful and they are so interesting and so... You funny. so funny and <laughs> and tangible, and you've mentioned a little bit about how you developed hero. But I was wondering about some of the other characters. Are they how much of people that you know did you put mm. into them, or how much are they kind of from your experience, or how did you go about developing characters that weren't completely different? Yeah, I think. Well, I think Rosalind and Jaime, much like Hero, those those two characters were also kind of characters in a sort of future story that I was going to write about sort of exes in the Bay of which one woman was a queer woman or a bi woman. I also am a bi woman. So I'm, it, it, it's, it's, it's also just an important part of my work to depict bi women of color in particular. Um, but I think for I think like with most writers, it's a it's, it's sort of a bit of a a mix that there there were certainly there are characters whose sort of details I completely grew up around and was really alive to the kind of 90s Bay Area sort of I mean I grew up in Milpitas where the, where the majority of the book is set which is a major, majority minority town those languages that the characters speak those were the languages that I heard growing up so for sure there there there's there's a huge sort of wealth of detail kind of really sort of lively and we kind of visceral sort of gut level detail that I, I I think was probably just saturated in my pores growing up there but then of course you know there there I mean there's also huge sort of parts, uh, regions of, of, of character and of self that you just, in a way, have to imagine yourself into. Not not just the stuff that I, I didn't grow up with, like the, the characters who are mainly based in the Philippines, but, you know, even characters like Rosalind Jaime. I think that's the funny thing about even with characters that are, in a way, similar to people that you knew or kind of, in a way, sort of bear the traces of people that are in your life. I think the minute that it's the act, the act of writing sort of transforms them into completely mm. new characters and then you find yourself getting to know just someone completely new. Yeah, it's. Uh, I like the the prologue's amazing. You know, because oh, and when you, you read the, when you read that bit, and like, it's, it's so good because it kind of gives you an understanding of that really key character mm. early on. Like when it when the book turned out to be from Hero's perspective, I was like, what? Wait! Like, I'm, you know, I was I was shocked that it was not going to be her story, but it was great. It like added that bit of extra layer to the story. Is that was that kind of a conscious decision? I mean, you said that you wrote it first and then the rest came afterwards, but yeah, was that I mean, always going to go in there? That was always going to be the prologue. I mean, if I had had, if I was a better writer or or had been had been capable of it, I think I probably would have, in a way, maybe tried to write the entire book from her perspective. But I think I just found myself, the more I wrote from it, the more defensive I became. Just in the way, I mean, the thing I always say with sort of characters, especially main characters, is that all your characters kind of have blind spots. So then ultimately you have to choose in a way the it's good to choose the kind of perspective character whose blind spot is actually productive for the world you're trying to build like if I was when I was trying to write from Ronnie's perspective for example she was never going to talk about having eczema or about the she was always just going to talk about like I got into three million fights and I won them all <laughs> like great character. But, but she's not going <laughs> to tell you anything sort of remotely in a way nuanced about the world in a way that you know maybe Hero can but Hero's blind spots especially around kind of intimacy or mm. trauma are you know ways that other characters you know th th those are opportunities in the book. So I think for sure Pasta's prologue I think for me is be, uh, is important that it, it remain there as a prologue. Uh, also this is related to my complete discomfort with the fact of, you know, hero as a, you know, woman with the kind of privilege she does being the main character just because Pasta's prologue in a way offers the kind of lens through which the entire book 
I think can should I mean not should this, I don't want to be prescriptive but can be read, mm-hmm. which is to say that's the that's the anchor and the starting point and the in a way kind of social political sort of axis from which you kind of can turn and see the world so that, that you begin really especially seeing the different class differences between the different sort of Filipino characters and com- within the kind of communities in the book to begin really from Pasa's perspective was for me an important kind of claim staking I think yeah mm. and you mentioned about um languages that are included in the book and they're ones that you heard growing up yeah. and you've included languages verbatim you haven't translated I wonder yeah. if you could talk us a little bit uh, you know about that yeah. was that you know god were your publishers like <laughs> dude you need to translate these you know was that a battleground or what was the decision making process behind that I, yeah, I think for me it was very, that was always that was always the intention from the be- very beginning that was important to me to represent the language. I mean, I, I grew up, my mother had her own language, which was Pangasinan. My dad had his own language, which is Ilocano. They spoke Tagalog or Filipino to each other, which is the kind of lingua franca of the Philippines. And then, of course, they spoke English to me and, and, and then a mixture of all of those languages, Ilocano less, mostly Pangasinan because my I grew up mainly around my mom's family. And that was actually my first language. So those kinds of, that kind of relationship to language being really sort of ultimately the borders between different languages being really porous and you know your own grasp of the languages being really kind of fragmented and flawed and sort of like saying something beginning in one language and ending it in another and that was also just that was just a really kind of like mundane sort of linguistic landscape that I came out of and that that's really sort of very common in the town that I grew up in which I think something like 60% of all the inhabitants speak a language other than English so for me that's just an American reality that I think deserves to be depicted in its, you know, with faith um, in American fiction. Otherwise, we're not seeing American fiction that's commensurate to American realities in a way. I think that kind of, that sort of compulsion to translations, especially because that compulsion is really only imposed on writers of color, immigrant writers. It's never, you know, it's never like George Eliot wrote, writes a lot in French. Yeah. Like, she, why doesn't she translate it? You know, it's, that's, that's, it's, it's really kind of a kind of, pose that's around other rising language and it really assumes that the primacy of the reader is white ultimately mm. or is you know english right, speaking yeah. which is just not the case i mean i don't i don't think that i have to white write for that reader and i you know and so i think for for me that was just important to you know depict the language as it exists in this community and not in a sense be hyper aware of some outside gaze and there was there was definitely some pushback i think um i i worked with two editors i think one of whom was a bit more familiar with the kind of communities that I was writing about and another which was less so and and I I think had to be a little bit politically educated about the kind of in a way ethical and aesthetic implications in you know translating books or translating words or in providing glossaries because you know the thing is I was like no one provides me glossaries to like white middle class Brooklyn life which I really know nothing about I wish people would provide me glossaries (laughs) so 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 I think for me just you know claiming that space and saying well, no, this, this, these lives depicted as they are are deserving of being in American fiction. Absolutely. And the, the one thing that, um, like, it's, it's a very, like, rhythmic kind of, like, it's as if, I mean, I felt like you, it, I, I could almost hear you reading it. Mm-hmm. It was very kind of, like, and, and that, I think the language bits really add to that. So oh, thank you. But um, where were we? 
Um, so, yeah, so you mentioned earlier, you touched on themes and you touched on trauma and kind of like um, relationships and vulnerability and kind of something that we all struggle with, which is how to be comfortable in our own skin. Which oh, is like well, a... that's super easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, so did the, were these themes kind of conscious things that you wanted to cover when you started writing or did you just kind of write the story and see what unfolded? I think it's probably some combination of the two. I think when you're when you're actually in the kind of fugue state of writing, you think you're just being sort of compelled. But then I, I think when, when you start to look back at all of your old writing you start to realize there's a thorough there's a thorough line and usually for me that line is about sort of I, I always think that I really love to write characters that are just wrong about themselves just just really wrong about themselves so I think for, for me the thing everyone in this book is wrong about themselves in a really kind of profound way and then has to contend with there's a beautiful line by um, the Korean American writer Alexander Chi in this really beautiful essay in the Atlantic that's, um, I think the line, I always misquote it because my memory is shot because of bourbon. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's something like, you're, you're, they're, they're, with your characters, there's the, the, a character is, you know, the person that they think they are and the person that they are. And it's your job to write about both characters. Mm. You know, and, and, and for me, I think the same. I think there's, you know, there, I, I don't have this sense of like, there's her real self and then the mask or whatever. I think even, you know, your sort of performative, in a way, your defensive self is also, it just holds as, as much sort of kernels of truth and of, 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 in a way, sort of exposure as, you know, your supposedly kind of deep down core. So I think for me, yes, writing about trauma, writing about, Mm, the kind of female interiority, especially of women of color, especially of queer women of color, has always been important. But also writing about trauma, I suppose, always uh, as not as a portrait, as I suppose, which is to say, like, I think often we get portrayals of trauma where it's just one person has trauma and everyone else is just sort of like a handmaiden to that trauma. Sort of everyone else is just sort of like you're the person. Whereas that's just one, just not at all sort of that's not at all the relationship that I had or, or what, what I saw, how I saw trauma operate in my community. It was a landscape. Mm. It was really like, okay, I've got trauma. So does literally everybody fucking else. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the kind of hand in hand thing with trauma or depicting trauma is also banality, sort of like, well, yes, I have trauma. I also now have to drive somebody to school. Like I also have to now eat a meal. I also now have to do the kind of like daily material granular kind of sensory and sensual things that you know make up a life mm -hmm. and i think for me i'm always just like make it more banal i think that's probably my that's probably the through line in all in, in all my work just kind of be more banal but especially in families as well you know mm. trauma often you know seeps into dynamics between yes. families and becomes you know secondary trauma is a you know very oh, tangible massively. thing and you know so that's it's interesting that you've chosen to set you know themes of trauma within family dynamics and not necessarily you know ones that are traditional you know people moving to different countries discovering yeah. new relatives and things yeah 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 no i think i mean intergenerational trauma is a very very real thing i certainly i mean you, the, the things that your parents and the generations in front of you especially if you're a first generation american like me those things you inherit like heirlooms you know not just the kind of the things that they actually say which for me growing up was you know few and far between a lot of it was just huge these huge sort of gaps and silences these lacuna these sort of you, you knew that things that happened that people just people would not fucking talk about like my mom would did not talk about her poverty until i was basically in my until I reached 30, basically. And and for, for I, I think you, especially as a writer, you start to, 
understand that the kind of the way storytelling in a way functions in your life is is, is really also it, it, you're really more a kind of silence reader more than a story storyteller I think when, when when you come from that kind of rupture um the book is also set in the 90s and you mentioned that it's you know set in kind of areas where you grew up mm-hmm. and things so obviously a lot of the detail will come from your recollection but did you have to do additional research to make sure that all those kind of historical details were accurate and- oh yeah 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 for sure for sure not only for all of the 70s stuff in the NPA and, yeah. and and the historical stuff which I did do loads of research on and I'm sure I still got everything wrong but for the 90s stuff for sure there was things like I, I really want to put this far side song in there and then just looked it up oh it's 1996 it's too late it's not this this is not period appropriate so to write a kind of 90s period novel sort of that, that, that it was difficult because I definitely had to check oh well how much would this have cost back then or did this car exist back then so for sure yeah I mean you know thank god for Google yeah, <laughs> and the idea that the 90s is now like period oh yeah, yeah it is period is I still think it, it, is, it kind of grim. is the 90s yeah like, it's grim I also feel oh the like 90s have be, never ended for me yeah, like, like, best decade best music oh yeah. sure yeah. Like, let's just sit and reminisce about the 90s yes. for the next 10 minutes <laughs> but it's, it's like you know it's the kind of thing that you would assume that you'd know everything fa- like accurately oh, yeah. because you feel like you know it oh, so yeah. well it just but, happened yesterday right yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm really interested to hear about you know you were sort of speaking earlier about how you'd written a bit about uh, the sort of prologue with Paz and then you'd um, written bits about Ronnie and for a different story mm. and that you were thinking of writing and stuff when well, can you tell us a little bit about the process when you went oh this could all kind of be one book yeah. I, I think I, I think so I started writing the prologue so I read it, wrote Paz's prologue in the summer of 2013 and then spent about half a year you know failing <laughs> essentially <laughs> writing Ronnie's perspective and I think probably yeah probably around sort of spring 2014 sort of Hero came in and then the kind of sh- Rosalind and Jaime came in and then the kind of the minute sort of they entered the book the structure of the book became quite clear of course I threw out that structure halfway through <laughs> because I realized there were certain things I was going to write that I wanted to write that were not going to work in any way but f- it was from that point when I Essentially, when I had the cast of characters, that then the the structure of the book became quite clear. And did you did you are you a planner? Or it I, feels like it needs to this kind of book needs to be like spreadsheets. And- <laughs> I'm not spreadsheets. That I I can't find my way around a spreadsheet. Please no. <laughs> but I I definitely I I definitely do outlines and kind of sort of points or sort of chapter points. But then. It's always hilarious when you've looked, you, then after you've written the book, and then you go back and look at it, and you're like, well, this is a completely different book. Cool that I had those in- ambitions. So I think, yes, I'm a planner, but I think when I'm actually in the writing space, I do actually, usually it's the writing of that particular sort of period or moment that dictates what happens. Yeah. Mm. So how long did it take to write? Probably from, from from the beginning, from the first word to, I guess, the first, um, to now, probably about four years, I think. Mm, cool. Yeah, I think so. Three, four years? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> We're in stunned silence. Um, so one of the things that really jumped out to me was the themes of, very corporeal themes of um, physicality and mm. illness and vulnerability versus that sort of fixing mentality because Hero obviously goes off to try and become a doctor and then you've got Ronnie and who has eczema and then it's Rosalind I think the makeup artist who you know has that power to sort of cover up blemishes Mm. and I know that you've had you know health you've had to deal with health issues yourself how much of 
that was was it important to you to write about that or did it come naturally and do you have you felt any kind of catharsis or more understanding by addressing those sorts of things oh I, I i think definitely a combination of both in that i it is important to me and it does come naturally i think for me writing about the body given my own experiences with particularly a kind of fragile and porous body if you're someone who's sick i was very sickly growing up i i mean like ronnie i also spent more years than I should have being fed Nestle formula um, as a result of, which is why I personally boycott Nestle. Um, And when was very, very sickly and had very severe eczema um, throughout my life and really up until recently. Um, So, so that sort of that, 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 that sense of the kind of profound vulnerability, like woundability of the body is something that I think is present in probably everything I write is that, that sense of, um, that sense of also being sort of in a way kind of fungible to the to the world, sort of things can sort of get into you. And then also, I think exactly as you point out, a real, I think probably critique and suspicion of sort of certain healing modalities, especially around the kind of idea, well, you know, take this and you'll be better. Or or that there, there's, there, you know, there's a particular, there's a certain way to be whole. There's a certain way to be a coherent body or there's a certain way to be, you know, because if you, especially, I mean, just from my perspective, if you, you know, are sort of covered in eczema, I mean, you do have the sense, I definitely had the sense that, you know, my body was just this sort of prison that I couldn't get out of. And then there was this kind of dream body that you had. Like today, to not have eczema sometimes I really definitely sometimes wake up and think that this this arm is just a dream like I will wake up and still have eczema again so I I still don't 100% feel at home in not having eczema so so ingrained in my psyche um, it became but I think that that sort of suspicion of the the idea that there's one way to be in in a sense a worthy body is something that I, I I always sort of fight, wrestle with and fight with and contend with. Just because I think for me, what, what ended up being healing, if, if, if we want to use that word, wasn't actually finding, you know, the right sort of diet that was going to heal the eczema or finding, you know, the right sort of healer or immunosuppressive drug or really like off the books chemo drug, which all of which I have tried, but was really sort of in a sense sort of accepting, okay, this body as it is, is okay. It's worthy to, of being here. Like this, this could just be my body. Th- this could just be my skin, and it and it's okay like that. And I think for for me that I think that ties into that sort of commitment to banality in a way. That commitment to sort of the 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 real textural, granular kind of visceral sort of material realities of, of, of a life and not the kind of sort of abstract fantasy of what a body looks like or what a life looks like, but what it really sort of looks like and feels like to, you know, be a person trying to be with other people. Yep. And there's a, there's such a, re- there is a sense of relief almost, isn't there, mm-hmm. in just letting yourself be banal and mm-hmm. having to stop striving for that. And it's quite an Americanized sort of theme as well you know that perfect not that to say that there aren't other countries obviously that you know but it's a very american thing white teeth blonde hair Mm. you know blue eyes that very sort of specific you know physical perfection and and health Absolutely. absolutely and that like you were saying the idea of pop this pill and that will make you better as opposed to you know there are some things that can't be fixed or can't be fixed now and yeah. will need patience and will need the banalities of life of getting up and 
moving on and taking and having meals like you say mm. to to heal yeah. i think that's so there's so no wonder you yeah. know that there's so many interweaving themes in your book because yeah. they're so they're all oh, <laughs> oh thank you no but that's what I, I i completely i mean i think i think that's what i'm you know that that saying that sort of like well i mean i think it's particularly immigrant kids and kids of color hear this a lot that you have to be twice as good or that you have to be great in in, in a sense in order to earn your place in the world to be worthy of being there and my thing is always like no let me be mediocre mm. like it's all I, i'll only have only ever sort of felt any sort of modicum of sort of success or achievement if i could just be mediocre and not be great that this this could be accepted my, my myself at my most mediocre could then say yeah and i'm worthy of being here but that's so difficult isn't it because we're yeah. all taught to oh, that yeah, we, that it's like yeah. success 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 yeah. and so when you it's, it's just like that's just our society isn't oh yeah. yeah but that's what I always especially tell younger writers especially because it's so I think it's it's really easy to get caught up in that idea especially if you're like an immigrant kid or a writer of color that your talent is going to be the most important thing about you that you know because it, it's easy because you're like well I'm really good at this one thing so this is the way I'll be differentiate myself or this is why I'm special and I, I just oh I it, sometimes it just breaks my heart yeah. because I'm like no it's not the talent that's going to save you it's really just vulnerability and being with other people yeah and learning to be okay with who yeah. you are like you say with like without any your most ordinary self yeah. yeah exactly um so um I, I, one thing i really liked about the book as well another thing was um the kind of like, how you write about the faith healers oh like, yes. I love all that stuff. Yes. so like it was really it was really interesting like do, when you were kind of was that kind of a fun thing to write about or yeah i mean that's i was i went to a lot of faith healers growing up i was brought to my grandma was also a bruja essentially she was a witch and a faith healer my mom went to loads of faith healers growing up because she was actually sick for for some period of my childhood so that was just a really I mean, it was just it's just a landscape that i know very well going to someone's sort of house or their restaurant or you know their living room and sort of being exposed to sort of different because every faith healer had their kind of different style mm. uh, and you know and, and i think that for me that's just a kind of picture of the of the bay area that i think i i i, I know very well and i think for me also i think i always I love I love magical realism and I love the idea of the you know the, the supernatural and there there's also discussion of sort of the different sort of monsters and demons and spirits that exist in kind of Filipino folk lore and mythology but for me again bringing it right back to being banal I think I always wanted to depict it in a way that was just completely kind of embedded into people's ordinary lives in the way that it was embedded into mine like it was definitely like when I was a kid definitely because I was so sickly there was de people that were definitely like well she's possessed by an encanto so we have to like exercise her that's why she's so sick <laughs> there, there's one now <laughs> just coming through and and so I think for me it's it was really that kind of sort of completely completely inextricable sort of intertwining of what might be called the supernatural or faith healing or the you know mythical with the absolute kind of dailiness and ordinariness yeah. I think that really comes across I've been to a few and oh. that, that kind of being in that kind of environment with the different people that are around in the different spaces and stuff like that it was really enjoyable to read oh cool thank you and <laughs> um, and you moved to London to do your MA at Goldsmiths and we've had a lot of writers go to Goldsmiths All right, none yeah. of whom I can remember off the top of my head. Um, you went to Goldsmiths. Did Rowan Hassai Buchanan go there? No, she went to UBA. Um, I know Natasha Bell Natasha did. Bell went to Goldsmiths. Yeah, so She's did Laura just... Kay. Had a few. Yeah. Had a few. Yeah. So <laughs> just, just many of the <laughs> talent that Goldsmiths produced. Did you find that moving countries had any impact on your writing? Well, I actually didn't move for the MA, so I moved about oh, three sorry. years. No, right. no, no, that's fine. I think uh, that's it, it makes it, that would have been more logical. <laughs> I moved in 2019 essentially because um, I was really sick. I was living in the Bay Area. I was very sick. I was grieving my 
father had died uh, three years earlier, and I was just, I was basically, uh, in a way, I had debilitating eczema and I couldn't work. So my partner actually got into an MA program and I would have jumped at any chance to get out of the Bay Area. It was so sort of haunted for me at that period. And I wasn't writing. So then I we moved to London. I gradually sort of started writing again, mostly X-Men fan fiction. We will be coming back to that, I see. <laughs> but and then I think about four or so years later, basically after I lived in the UK long enough so that I could pay home fees as opposed to international fees, which made a big difference in my life. That's when I applied to and, and, and got into Goldsmiths. Um, so, but I think at the point that I got in, I had already written the prologue and was kind of writing it on the side. At Goldsmiths, I was actually working on a book of essays. So it, it was almost like this book ended up being my kind of side, my pet project, whereas I was writing mostly essays when I was there. Mm. Mm. And, and so did did being in a completely new environment did that have any sort of effect on the way you wrote or the things that you were sort of drawn towards or i mean i'm sure i'm living the complete cliche of literally every writer who leaves their hometown or leaves their country and suddenly finds them writing themselves writing about it i don't i don't i mean it must really be that cliche of yes you have a little space and then suddenly you're you have the distance to write about it suddenly you're thinking about it suddenly but i was very i mean i was very conscious that you know i i had been away for so long um that and and, and the bay area has changed a lot that i didn't want to in a sense fetishize or romanticize the kind of bay area that i grew up with so i i i tried to stay fairly vigilant and in a way unsentimental despite having I mean just the, just exploding with love for that place in that particular period but for sure I think the distance helped I I mean I'm, I've moved back since I've, I've moved I've, I've been living back in the Bay Area for about two months now so we'll see I mean if all of my books from now on are about London but I don't think so I think I'm gonna continue writing about on the Bay Area. that note <laughs> is, do you think you are going to continue writing about the Bay Area I think so yeah. probably I mean I'd like to I, I'm still writing about the Bay Area I'd also like to write about in a way that there's a post kind of 2008 but also uh, just throughout the there's been a kind of exodus of, from from the Bay Area of obviously people who can't afford to live in the Bay Area now because of the gentrification brought on by tech. So half of my family lives in like Las Vegas now. So I would actually really like to write about that kind of migration in a way. Are you but writing yeah. another book? I am ish. I mean, right now they, they, I'm doing the second job they never tell you about, which is, you know, going around and sort of talking about your book, which is fun or you know, ish. <laughs> but um, but I, I would like to get back to writing. Yeah. But there, there there's a couple of things in the pipeline. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Oh, Thank you. Yeah. Um, and finally, so if, if any of the listeners are interested in reading more Filipino writers, do you oh. have any recommendations? Sorry to put you on the spot. Oh my gosh, no, <laughs> please. This is, this is my favourite thing oh, to talk excellent. about. So I would definitely recommend Christine Ong Muslim. I can spell her name out um, later. So Christine Ong Muslim, she's, a, she's this amazing kind of speculative fiction writer. So she writes kind of these cross between sort of different stories, sort of speculative fiction, sci-fi, sort of eco-punk, steampunk. She's she's based out of um, Soksargen, so the kind of area in the south of the Philippines, Mindanao, essentially, um, south-central Mindanao. And she writes just this incre these incredible kind of like proto-political fables that are also about, you know, the kind of disaster capitalism and late capitalism and obviously like neo-colonialism in the Philippines and sort of corporate greed and just the, you know, destruction of the environment in ways that are just completely... But the way her, the, her writing is so just kind of 
limpid and sharp and just crystalline. And I, I, I wish she was read more. I wish that, uh, she, she's just incredible. And I've been a fan of hers for a really long time. Um, Glenn Diaz is uh, an amazing, ama- he wrote this amazing novel um, which won, I think, the 2007 Palanca Prize, which is a, a really um, prestigious lit- literary prize in the Philippines. Um, and it's this novel that, for me, I think is the most, it, it's the best psychogeography of Manila that I've probably ever read. Um, it's this incredible book that ta- that's from the perspective of call center workers, so Filipino call center workers, so we know that um, call centers are often sort of um, employ Filipino workers, so there's loads of call centers in the Philippines. And he worked at a call center, um, Glenn did. And it's, it's in a way, it's kind of a thriller. It's about a heist by some call centers, but it's also just this amazing. Oh, it's, it needs to be a movie, <laughs> but it's also just this really amazing, also kind of huge socio political critique of the Philippines and its and its history, uh, its colonial history, and it, it. But it's also a real love letter to Manila, and it's just and it's also a really interesting sort of depiction of sort of like contemporary queer sort of Southeast Asian life. It's just a really kind of I think just incredible incredible book that I think everybody should read. Oh, they so, both sound so, amazing. Oh, please. And I don't think we can let you go without oh, just coming yeah. back to oh, the no. X-Men fanfiction. <laughs> okay. Because when I was growing up, I was obsessed with the cartoon. The oh, movies yes. have nothing on the yes, cartoon. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Wow, the I movies a lot. Yes, I but, hated the movies, but actually it was because I hated them that I wrote about them. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, I think this must be a thing with me. I hated heroes. So I think this must be how well, I I had liked. a whole thing with like Rogue. Oh, and Rogue Gambit. And Gambit. Like, yes. Yes. Dress it's, yeah. Oh, yes. I can good, see that. Some pictures now. Yeah. All good. Oh yeah. So, um, explain. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think very much like you. I think I, I grew up on the cartoon and loved the... I mean, I grew up really on a lot of the, those types of comics, but also a lot of Japanese manga and Japanese anime. That was really just part of the kind of like visual landscape that was on my eyeballs <laughs> as a kid. So with X-Men fanfiction, yeah, I think originally how it came out was just I had watched those movies. They were one of the few things that I sort of watched at this time where I was really sort of sick and grieving and was really kind of angry at them, but in a way angry at them in a kind of productive way where I was like, well, I want to actually write stories about all the fucked up things that happen to these characters in in these movies that are really just sort of disturbing and sort of found myself actually writing in in a really kind of I think oblique, but actually, if I look back, really obvious way about the things that I was also wrestling with, which sort of bodily trauma and grief and loss. I think that's the thing about, I think obviously, you know, a lot of really amazing critique has been made about how X-Men and Marvel and all, all of those, that media is really, provides really sort of amazing metaphors, especially for kind of marginalized communities, for young queer kids, and and talks about race. I mean, the mutant metaphor is a very mm. kind of fruitful metaphor. Um, um, so for sure, I think I was tapping into that. But I think I was also tapping into the kind of, I don't know, sort of gaping maw of loss that sort of it runs through a lot of those comics. I don't know if you guys have watched Infinity War. I have, yeah, I'm so excited. Oh, my mate's gone my to America. God. I promised I'd wait for him to get back until I watched it. I'm so annoyed. Is but, it amazing? I've read the reviews. I would, listen, I don't even know how to, I don't even know to say if it's good. <laughs> like it was a sledgehammer. Like really? I really, I was, I was telling people, I was like, it's like, the worst breakup of my life. Like, I mean, I just, in the way that it, like, the emotions, it, oh my God, I'm so excited. This is, 
the new Marvel. This is the, <laughs> the one with all of them in it. All of the Marvel uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. The cool. other greatest movie of our time, well, of of the of recent four weeks, is Coco. Have you guys watched? Yeah. This? Oh my god, I love it. Jesus so much. Christ, though. But I'm like primal sobbing from five minutes in. No one told me that yeah. it should come with a warning. But like, I loved it that that was the, the message in that film. It's about the sort of Day of the Dead in Mexico. And like, oh, I loved God, it that because you know everyone just sort of sees that as like kind of like a party, Cinco yeah. de Mayo. But actually, like the message behind it of kind of like God, remembering your family so that the, your remembering dead family your so dead. Come Jesus. Back. It was it, yeah. I bought my eyes out all the way oh, through. Yeah. No. Yeah, oh my oh, God. I you need to watch it. See it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you need to like. I mean, you have to have. I think uh, just an arsenal of tissues and just really not care if yeah. anyone's around you because I was primal. I was watching it on a plane <laughs> and I'm like, I people must have thought that I like got really terrible news because I was really primal sobbing throughout. Yeah. Oh, it was like when I watched the first 20 minutes of Up. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 true. I watched Very the Bob and Our Stars on a plane. <gasps> I watched the Bob yeah, and Our Stars on a plane. Cried my eyes. Out. I couldn't oh, even never stop myself crying. And it's not yeah. even that. Like oh, I think it is. And just tears were <laughs> just falling. Out. I wasn't actually crying. Yeah. Tears were just gravity was just pulling tears. It's out like of my involuntary reflex. Yeah. They, they, they say that your height, your emotions are heightened on planes because of like less oxygen. Yeah. Oh, is they that are. It? Yeah. It's true. They yeah. are. Is that it? Yeah. No, I think I think it's the power of cocoa. I I refuse to believe that. Excellent. Very well, good. On that note. <laughs> oh, cool. Hello, Thanks. Thank you so much. Oh, Rosie, thank you so much. Um, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. The Riff Raff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com. <laughs>